Good evening, everyone. It's really good to see so many here. Uh, great singing. Brilliant. And great thoughts, Trevor. Thank you so much. Uh, so far in this series on doctrine, on what we believe, we have looked at Scripture. What do we believe about Scripture? That it is the God-breathed, written Word of God. And amongst a whole host of other things that we considered and we looked at, we said that it has the potential to transform our lives because it is bread and it is a mirror and it is a scalpel and it is a torch, it is fire, it is a hammer and it is a sword. And then two weeks ago, we responded to this British Humanist Association ad campaign that appeared primarily up the sides of buses in major UK cities. There is probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And we affirmed that night that we actually believe there probably is a God. And we looked at what exactly we believe about God. And we included a section on God in three persons blessed trinity that the bible presents one god but as three distinguishable persons father son and holy spirit or in his equation one plus one plus one equals one and then last week we turned our attention to what we believe about jesus god incarnate god with skin on and the core issue that we wrestled with, and I know we could have wrestled with so many other issues, but the core issue that we wrestled with and teased out was our belief in the perfect humanity and deity of Jesus Christ, that he was fully human and fully God. It wasn't either or, it was both and. This week, as Trevor has said, we come to reflect on what we believe about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Now let me say a couple of things right at the, the very beginning, just even about that phrase that we often use, the third person of the Trinity. First thing is that the Holy Spirit is not less than the Father or the Son. Really important to get our heads around that thought. That when we say third, we're not talking about order or rank. Remember our definition from two weeks ago of the Trinity. The Trinity is one God who equally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and and then this last bit, who are each fully and equally God. So the Holy Spirit is not a third-rate citizen in the Godhead. And yet sometimes I think whenever we say the third person of the Trinity, it gives that implication. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is a person. A personal being, not an it. Sometimes he is referred to as the Holy Ghost, which I think leads to and feeds the confusion. But it's really important to recognize as Tozer uh, affirms so brilliantly in this quote on the screen, which I'm not going to read, that the Holy Spirit's not an energy, not a force or a thing, but a person. And so in the, Old, in the New Testament, we discover that the Holy Spirit thinks and speaks and leads and can be grieved. That's what Paul says. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4. And you can't grieve a force. You grieve a person. Now, as we begin to take this a little further, I think it's important to acknowledge right up front and I'm sure many of you would expect me to do this, that when it comes to the third person of the Trinity, there's been more than a little confusion and tension and controversy and sadly division. And yet when you look at this verse and the surrounding verses from Ephesians 4, I find it sad. 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Because one of the key things the Holy Spirit does is he unites the body of Christ. And Paul goes on in Ephesians 4 to talk about the fact that there is one Spirit. One body. And yet, what we seem to find is that the Spirit who joins us together also appears to be, at times, the Spirit who splits us apart. And something's not right. Something is fundamentally wrong, not with the Spirit, obviously, but with our understanding, our attitude towards the Spirit and the things, or the so-called things of the Spirit. Second thing I want to say, just by way of introduction, is that we find ourselves living at a time in history of the church where during the last half of the last century, we witnessed a significant resurgence of interest in the Holy Spirit. Many of you know that Pentecostalism kicked off around the turn of the 20th century, 1905, Azusa Street. And it had an emphasis on a direct personal experience with God through baptism in the Holy Spirit. Just interesting, we had a a Romanian Pentecostal church use our church this afternoon and baptized, as in water baptized, 20 people here this afternoon. The place was packed. And then around the 50s and 60s, the so-called charismatic movement began to grow. And over a period of time, it clearly affected and impacted Christians in all major denominations, including Roman Catholicism. And there were key players in this movement, and I could list any number of key players, for example, such as the late John Wimber and the Vineyard Group of Churches. House fellowships were formed and grew, such as our own CFC here in Belfast. And a key aspect of their teaching and ministry was and is their emphasis on the role and the presence of the Holy Spirit, not only in individual lives, but in corporate church life. Now, I'm not going to make any comments on this. That may disappoint some. I'm not. Others have. But here's what Bruce Milne, in his classic little book that we've been sort of using as a bit of a textbook on this series on Dr. Know the Truth, this is what he says. In some cases, the movement, the charismatic movement, or so-called charismatic movement, has led to sharp division within churches, and sometimes to imbalance and to excess. In others, contact with it has brought evident quickening of spiritual life. And I sort of want to stand before you here this evening and just say that has been my experience. Many of you will know that, uh, and there is someone from Balnehinch here tonight, which is a bit unnerving, Thanks, Wilson. Uh, But many of you know that I spent 13 years ministering in and working for a church that many people have described or would describe as charismatic. Or certainly as having charismatic tendencies. (laughs) Now what exactly they mean by that, and why people have described it like that, is something you're going to have to ask those people. Because I've never really been able to get my head around what it has meant. And what people mean by that? Is it because some people raise that? Is it because there is a drum kit? I'm never too sure. There's all sorts of reasons why people put that label on a church like Balnehenge Baptist. And what I have seen, and, and this is me just being really honest with you, but what I have seen is division caused by discussions on the Holy Spirit. I've seen imbalance by so called things of the Spirit. 
And I've also seen renewal in individuals' lives following a fresh experience and filling of the Holy Spirit. I've been disappointed by those who describe themselves as charismatic. I've been disappointed by those who would run a mile from all things charismatic. I've been deeply influenced by people who would describe themselves as charismatic. I've been deeply influenced by those who would describe themselves as anything other than charismatic. And here's the point I want to make. And I'm just going to quote scripture. Because for me, this is what it's all about. And this is my desire. And I'm really not putting myself anywhere. Since we live by the Spirit, this is my heart. To keep in step with the Spirit. And even this next bit that Paul writes concerning these issues for me is so important. Let us not become conceited, provoking or envying each other. That's where I stand, which is no clearer. So with that as a bit of a backdrop and a kind of introduction, what I would like to do is explore what does, if you have a Bible with you, you, if you do want to turn to it, we're going to go all over the place tonight. Uh, But what I want to do is explore what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to make 13 comments about the Holy Spirit. I realize it's almost 10 to 8, so it's about a minute per comment. Okay? So 13 common statements about the Holy Spirit. But what I also want to say, and and, I mean, you realize this. Almost every single one of these comments requires a sermon. Or certainly most of them, okay? So I'm going to scratch the surface. I'm going to say a few things. I'm going to leave lots of things unsaid. We'll maybe come back and do a series on all of these. I, I don't know. But right from the very beginning of our biblical record of time, we encounter the Holy Spirit. He's there in Genesis. He's there in the book of beginnings. It says, now the earth was formless and was empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And then it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so the Holy Spirit, in the context of creation, was life-giving. They want us to grab on to that. He helped create. He was part of creating a new beginning. Which is exactly what he has done and what he continues to do in individual lives. You know, as as Christians, what we do whenever we're describing somebody becoming a Christian, we use a biblical term, a a term that has been abused a lot, I know. But the term that we use in describing somebody becoming a Christian is they've been born again. Which Jesus explains on one occasion during his dramatic late night encounter with a member of the ruling Jewish council, a man by the name of Nicodemus. And here's what Jesus says as recorded in John 3. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit creates new life always has done always will do one of the key aspects of what the Holy Spirit is involved in creating new life should we all agree with that back to the Old Testament the Holy Spirit was involved in creation and then as you read on through the pages of particularly the Old Testament you discover that he came upon particular people at particular times for particular reasons, particular tasks here are just some examples and again you'll know these in Exodus 31 the Lord tells Moses that Bezalel has been filled with the Spirit of God in order to create art love that thought in order to engage it says in all kinds of crafts he's been filled 
by the Spirit of God. In other words, the Spirit ignites gifts and abilities, and we'll come back to that in a moment. In Judges 6, we discover that Gideon, who felt like a complete nobody, he said, my clan is the weakest and I'm the least in my family. In Judges 6.15, and yet subsequently he goes on to be one of the most incredible leaders at a very difficult time in the history of Israel. Why? Well, involved in that transformation is the fact that the Spirit of the Lord had come upon him. Judges 6.34. A few chapters later, we read that Samson was tied up with ropes by the Philistines. But then when the Spirit of the Lord, it says, came upon him, he was able to break out that the ropes became like charred flax and the binding simply fell from his hands. In other words, the Spirit of God enabled Samson to experience freedom from bondage. And I don't want to make too many connections to that, but many would say that is exactly what the Holy Spirit does in our lives and in the lives of those around us. He sets people free from bondage. Later on in the Old Testament, we also find that the Spirit of God comes upon Isaiah. And he comes upon him and anoints him and therefore he is able to preach good news to the poor and proclaim release for the captives. And so in the Old Testament the Spirit of God was clearly present. He was clearly active. But a new day was coming. A new day was promised that clearly involved the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Early on in the Old Testament God had made a covenant with his people but the Israelites kept getting their side of the covenant wrong. They kept messing up and so via the prophet Jeremiah God says these pivotal words. He says in Jeremiah 31, 31, the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant. I'm going to do a new thing with the house of Israel. And Jeremiah then goes on to explain what exactly he meant by that new covenant. He says, listen, it's going to be internal rather than external. I'm going to put my law in the people's minds and I'm going to write it on their hearts. So it's going to move from outward observance to an inward experience. But how was that going to happen? Well, God clarifies that via the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and I'll move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What a promise. What a prospect. This idea of a new heart, a new spirit within, removing that old hard heart and replacing it with a soft heart as a result of the Holy Spirit being given. And then Joel comes along and he declares that this Holy Spirit will be poured out on all peoples. And so the one question remaining as you work your way through is when? When is this going to happen? And years pass. Hundreds of years, in fact. But then with the birth of Jesus, there's a tangible burst of activity of the Spirit of God. Virtually everybody, and I find this fascinating, everybody connected with the first Christmas is impacted and influenced in some way by the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, it said, is filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. Mary is told that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. When pregnant Mary is greeting pregnant Elizabeth, her cousin, John the Baptist leaped in her womb and Elizabeth, it says, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Zechariah, Elizabeth's other half, was filled with the Holy Spirit before he broke into song. A song we looked at Christmas last year. And the story continues and the promise begins to unfold further. And John the Baptist and Jesus grew up. And one day as they're standing by a river, John says that Jesus is going to come along and baptize you with 
the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Jesus himself is then baptized with water, but as he comes up out of the water, we read that the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And in the space of one chapter in Luke, you then read that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, is led by the Holy Spirit. He returns to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then whenever he goes into a synagogue, he's able to stand up anointed by the Spirit. And he echoes the words of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointed me to preach good news to the poor, etc., etc. And so the Holy Spirit was key in the life of Jesus. And as Jesus would then soon explain, the Holy Spirit was going to become key in the life of every single Christian, every Christ follower. And a core text in this is John 14. Please, if you do, as I say, have a Bible, turn with with me to this. John 14. Because in this this passage, Jesus has, has told the disciples that he's going to leave them. But along with news that he's going to leave them, he brings information to them that the Father is going to give them the Holy Spirit. And the term that he uses for the Holy Spirit is counselor or advocate or paraclete in Greek, which means the one who is called alongside. And Jesus says in verse 16 of John 14, have a look at it there, that the counsellor will help you. The counsellor will be with you forever. And it's such an encouraging promise. But notice as you read on that not only will the Holy Spirit be with them forever, and this is key, but he actually says, look at verse 17, that he will be in them And here we're back to the promise of Ezekiel that God is going to put his spirit in us. Now turn over to John 16, verse 7. Because here, in John 16, 7, we find one of the most intriguing things Jesus said. One of the most mysterious things in many ways at first glance. Because it almost seems illogical. Jesus says to disciples, Truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. And I want you to stop there. It's for your good. That I'm going away. How could it be for the disciples? How could it be for anybody's good? For Jesus to go away. Perfect man. Perfect God. Most incredible teacher who ever walked. Why was it good for him to leave his disciples? Let's read on. Unless I go away, says Jesus. The counsellor, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send them to you. So Jesus had to go in order for the Spirit to come. And approximately seven weeks after his resurrection and ten days after his ascension, all heaven breaks loose. As the Spirit comes, comes in power at Pentecost and a new day begins. This new day begins. So Jesus was God with us, the Holy Spirit, God in us. And as we continue with this, And in the few moments that I have left, I just want to then briefly look at what the Holy Spirit actually does in our lives in the here and now today. And a key aspect of his ministry is that he brings us to that place where we become aware of our sin. We've already sang this, we've already thought about this actually, or Trevor's led us in this. But if you go back to John 16, if you still have it open there, 
Just look at what it goes on to say, because Jesus describes why the advocate, the Holy Spirit, needed to come. It says, when he comes, he will prove to the world that it's wrong about sin and wrong about righteousness and wrong about judgment. In other words, it is God, the Holy Spirit, who's going to convict people of the wrong in their lives. It's God, the Holy Spirit, who's going to unsettle people, who's going to disturb people. It's God, the Holy Spirit, who's going to reveal to people how we can reconnect with God and how we can prepare for the inevitability of judgment. So the Spirit convicts. Another key aspect of the Spirit's ministry in our lives is regarding his, his confirming ability that we actually do belong to God. And this is so important because the Holy Spirit assures us of our true identity. So many people, so many people lack assurance. Do I, do I really belong to God? Am I really a Christian? And so we need to hear what Paul writes to the Christians in Rome. He says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit, capital S, spirit of adoption. And by him, by this spirit, you can now cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I just love this idea that the Holy Spirit who indwells those of us who are Christians testifies with our spirit. He speaks into our innermost being and confirms, listen, you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. Despite at times what you think, how you feel, this is is your identity. God's spirit who dwells within speaks into our spirit. The third role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and this is a key one, he makes us more like Jesus. And I know that should be the desire of every true Christian, to become more like Jesus, not only in our attitude, but in our words, and in our thoughts, and in our actions. And again, according to Paul, that's what the Holy Spirit's function is in our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We are being transformed into the likeness with ever-increasing glory into Christ's likeness, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And a really core dimension, I was thinking, what, what dimension do I want to pull out? But a really core dimension of this is the presence and the reality of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Those nine segments. Remember, it is not the fruits of the Spirit. Please, it's the fruit. There's no plural. You can't just pick and choose which ones you want or would like. It's one fruit, nine segments. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. Nine characteristics that should be growing increasingly evident in every single child of God. So one of the questions people often ask, how do you know or how do you look for evidence of the Spirit of God in a person's life? And as I say, I sometimes think that people have got very strange thoughts and views on what that evidence is. As I said, or just a simple example, and I don't mean to be, but some people think, hey, see if someone raises their hands, I mean, obviously they're into that sort of thing. And you could go down any list. See, for me, the evidence of the reality of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life is that they're becoming more loving, more patient, more kind, more gentle, more self-controlled, more faithful, more good, more kind. My fruit doesn't grow overnight. It's a process. It's gradual. But over a period of time, one of the things that I constantly ask myself, David, am I becoming more loving? There's times I get it wrong, yes. But generally, am I becoming more loving? Because that is the evidence of the Holy Spirit of God 
at work and alive in my life. The Holy Spirit helps us become more like Jesus. And the reason it's called the fruit of the Spirit, and the reason many people say these are the characteristics, is just look at the life of Jesus, and those nine segments are all there. But connected to this is also the experience that every single person who is a Christian can relate to. Because although the Holy Spirit lives within every Christian, we all know the tension that exists between the Spirit who lives within us and our sinful nature. The Spirit longs to produce fruit in our life, longs to make us more like Jesus, whereas the sinful nature, as Paul graphically points out, causes a whole litany of negative behavior. Sexual immorality, for example. Fits of rage. Outbursts of anger. Just to name three. And there is this inner conflict between the Spirit and the sinful nature. And therefore there are times when we do show real love and we do show kindness where there are other occasions whenever I express hatred and I express discord and I go, why is that? The Spirit of God lives in me. Why do I do that at times? And it's because, as Galatians 5 teaches, there's an internal conflict between the Spirit who dwells within me and my sinful nature. But the thing that I'm comforted by is this, that it bothers me. And the reason it bothers me, I believe, is because the Spirit lives within me. And it's why Paul says, you know, you know all the good things I really would love to do, those are the things I don't do. The, really, the things I hate doing, those are the very things I keep doing. Because he recognizes there's an internal battle going on. And so what's his advice? And it's into that context that you come to the verse I showed you earlier that is a key verse for me when it comes to the Holy Spirit. What's his advice? Live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Tune in to His agenda for your life. Whatever that means. And again, as I say, there's a whole sermon. What does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? Because if that's a clear instruction from Paul, from God to us, keep in step with the Spirit, we need to wrestle with what that actually means. And a final rule of the Spirit that I want to just look at and mention is that He ignites gifts in our lives. You know, whenever Paul was writing to the church in Corinth concerning spiritual gifts, he starts with a great and a helpful phrase, such a helpful phrase. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, I do not want you to be ignorant. I do not want you to be uninformed. And so what we can say from this is there there are gifts, and then Paul goes on to clarify a number of key points regarding the gifts that are ignited and given by the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to mention three things about that. First is there are different gifts listed in at least four different New Testament passages. Some would say there are 24 various gifts. If you want me to give you a list of them, speak to me afterwards. Secondly, we are all given a gift or gifts. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians makes that really clear. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 and verse 11. There are no exceptions. All of us have at least a gift. And finally, they are not given for our personal gratification or for selfish reasons, but they're given for the common good. They're given to encourage and to benefit and to minister into one another's lives. And so there you are. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe he's essential in our lives, to our lives, and we believe these 13 13 statements, or at least we believe these 13. There are more that I could have said. But all I want to do before I hand back to Trevor is I just actually want to finish by quoting some words that we've now said together, sung together twice today. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son. But also thank you for sending us, as individuals and as a church, your Spirit, until the work on earth is done.